Morning, everyone. Well, we're continuing. This is lesson number 11. And I have always, I always, in my own understanding and assessment of what we're doing, try to determine how long a particular teaching will take, a week, two weeks, six weeks, whatever. And so we had already planned, Evan and I had already planned that I would be finished this particular series by next Sunday. This is six weeks ago. And that he would present about a three-week, maybe four-week presentation concerning Islam, you know, the issues of Islam and what we should know about it, how we should uh, be uh, relating to those who are Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And especially in light of what's been going on in the world and how we should trust God in that and so on. And so I told him, I think I'll be finished about the first Sunday in April. Uh, right now, I think we're going to probably be going several more weeks. Because as I came to this portion of the material, ending with the priesthood of Jesus, knowing that that needs to be applied to the church and then needs to be applied to our personal lives, I was overlooking a major portion of presentation of that which actually we've already studied to some degree. And that is the person of God, who he is in himself. And we went through some of that in the Genesis class, but I dare say that if I were to give a test concerning the basic elements of what that was, we would probably have a lot of folks not do as well as we should be able to do. And it's always good to be repeating Second Peter. The apostles writing to the church in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he says, I'm going to repeat, I'm going to continue to repeat, and as long as I'm here, I'm going to do this because you need to hear it. You just need to hear it. So there's always going to be that repetition. So beginning maybe this week, but especially within the next couple of three weeks, we'll be talking about issues about the Trinity that we have already discussed. And so if you already know all that, you don't want to hear it again, don't stay home, come back in here. <laughs> Never an excuse not to come in. And so we'll be getting into that later on in the lesson this morning. So, again, thank you for being here. Um, and thank you for honoring God's Word as preeminent. Because as you do so, God works in our lives in a greater and deeper way. I think and I'm concerned that there is a thought in the church. Grace, having been saved by grace through faith, means that everything happens automatically and that we can live differently and we kind of coast along and that is not what grace means and so thank you for applying yourself thank you for opening your hearts and your ears and your mind and your time to the Word of God because he ministers to us even in areas and usually and mostly in areas that we're not even aware of but he is doing that inside if you would secret spiritual work in our souls accomplishing Romans 8:29 so thank you for that if you don't know what Romans 8:29 is you're going to kind of have to look that up father thank you for ministering to us thank you always for the supremacy and the glory the grandeur the greatness the perfection the wonder of your word Nothing like it 
anywhere. Father, nothing even begins to approach it. For it stands so lofty that nothing of earth can begin to even touch it. Father, thank you for sending your word in the person of your son to do all that was necessary in order to bring us to you. As he has descended, now with he takes us to ascend into your presence. Father, thank you for this monumental condescension so we can experience monumental ascension. Bless your word today here and in the service at 10 o'clock. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, up to this point, what we have seen is that Jesus came, remember, from heaven as God's image bearer. He came to fulfill, remember, God's creative purpose. You remember what that creative purpose is. You remember where that creative purpose is listed. If someone says to you, what was God's purpose in creating the heavens and the earth, the cosmos, you know, all that there is, why did God do that? There is a purpose in God. He has a plan and a goal for having done what he's done. And so Jesus came to fulfill that purpose. And what was that purpose? In Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God has created all things and has put man upon the earth in this creation for one purpose only. And that is to have a community on the earth that will be his image bearers that this earthly community this earthly family will be reflective of the heavenly community of father son and holy spirit and so as this earthly community begun with adam and eve adheres and carries out the mandates that God has given Adam as that earthly community beginning with Adam and Eve begin to physically grow children and continue to maintain the mandates by obedience this place of God's dwelling that begins in the garden of Eden this place of God's sanctuary that begins in this garden as the populace begins to grow the garden will be expanded so that the entire earth will one day become the garden of God the place of his dwelling with his people for fellowship and communion this is what it's all about and so you remember when Adam failed, Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Adam failed to fulfill the mandate that he was given to guard and keep the garden in Genesis 2, 15. He failed. He refused it. And as a consequence of his failure, God had to remember, put them out of the garden. But before doing so, he said, I'm putting you out because... I cannot allow 
the impurity of sin to dwell in my sanctuary without killing you because my presence and my holiness will destroy an unholy people. But if God just puts them out and keeps them out with no hope, he has failed, hasn't he, in accomplishing his 126 purpose. So what will he do? Remember in Genesis 121, what does he do? He slays an animal, an innocent, thus typifying and what word do I want? Not uh, he, uh, looking forward anticipating the whole sacrificial system which we see in Leviticus, which will be the system that will, through the sacrifices of an innocent and through the shedding of blood and through the burning of these animals, that will be the way into God's presence and fellowship. And that will maintain the people of God as the people of God through their obedience to the law and this system until one man comes who was promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, and who in himself will conclude, who will gather up and who will absolutely in himself fulfill everything that that system has typified and has been happening over thousands of years. Right? This is what it's all about. This is what we celebrate today in the resurrection. All of that has now come to us through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've seen that God has done this through his son. So Jesus came to fulfill God's creative purpose of having an earthly community of image bearers who would actively and accurately reflect the heavenly community. And what is that heavenly community? It is a triune community. It is a community of three distinct divine persons who fellowship with one another through loving roles. A community of three distinct divine persons who fellowship with one another through loving, distinctive, individual roles. Very important to see that because that is the reason, remember, for the threefold ministry. Because each of those roles, prophet, priest, and king, says something distinctive about each person of the Trinity. And in order to be God's image bearer, those three roles have to be collectively demonstrated and lived out so that God's triune nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be accurately manifested to the world. And so Adam fails, Jesus comes, he succeeds to do that. We've been through the three roles. And now this morning we'll continue to talk about what all that means and as we get in more into the Trinity in the next couple of weeks. So that the earth, why, will be filled with this great truth, this great truth. So Jesus accomplished this as he lived out the three roles. The threefold office, by the way, that's a singular, the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king simultaneously. At the same time he was king, he was also prophet and priest. As he was prophet, he was king and priest. As he was priest, he was king and prophet. All three collectively. One occasionally taking the lead, but the basic role in Jesus' ministry here on earth is priest but he's also prophet, remember, and also king.
So what was so significant and essential about these three roles being fulfilled simultaneously? What is the significance? The significance in what Adam was supposed to do, the significance in what Jesus had to do, is the same significance for us today as the people of God in Christ. It's the same significance. We're not excused from it. We are called into it. We have been saved as God's people in order for us by the Spirit's power to be reflective of the same three roles in order to accurately manifest the image of God upon the earth through the church. These three roles together reveal the most fundamental truth about the person of God. If someone would ask you, what is the kernel, the absolute central most significant and most necessary truth about God. If we are to boil, if you would, if we are to boil all that we know about God and all that God has demonstrated to us about himself, if we were to boil it all down to one issue, just one issue, I want you to know this, I want you to get this, just one issue. What is that issue? What is that issue? The Trinity. It's who God is in himself. That's the singular, most significant and central truth that God is displaying about him. That's where the glory is. That's where the holiness is. That's where the grandeur and the grace and all that we know about God, that's where it all is. And from that, it all emanates. So anything we know about God, anything we understand about the gospel, the Bible, anything and everything is but a reflection, a manifestation, the result of this seed that God is a trinity, a triune being. You see, that, as I said before, is the distinction between the God of the Bible and the God of Islam. Don't you believe what people say? It doesn't matter what they call him. It's the same God. It is Satan's lie. It does matter. Don't you believe when they say, well, but Allah and the God of the Bible are the same God. Don't you believe that lie, that heresy? There is a distinction between God and Allah as long and as wide and as anything as eternity. It is an eternal distinction, not just a few differences. Because Allah, like every other God that is manufactured, the God of Mormonism, the God of Jehovah's Witness, the God of Krishna, the God of whoever it is, these are single-person gods, if you would. And a single-person God cannot create and do what the God of the Bible has done. It's impossible. A single person God can't save you, and there are very reasonable theological reasons for that. Hopefully you get, get a better understanding of it as we go through this. A single person God cannot love us, cannot be merciful to us, cannot forgive us. Only a triune God can do this. Amen? So when you're talking to those <clears throat> of other religious persuasions, don't spend your time on all the peripheral. 
Go to the heart of the matter and begin to discuss the issue of the essence of who God is. You see, God desires to image his <clears throat> triunity through his own people. The doctrine of the Trinity. Let me see something here. You know what? I have forgotten to do some finishing of last week. I'm just realizing I'm not, uh, this is this week, but I've forgotten to do some of the week from last week. So let me stop. Can I stop? As I've, <laughs> I've just realized, wait. Hold on a second. I do this occasionally just to throw you off to see if you're listening. <laughs> well, I think I can go on then. Okay, I'll go on. Did we talk about the branch last week and the uh, and all of that? Okay. I just had some other things about the resurrection. I, I think you have most of them. I changed some of them, but I think okay. Well, let's continue on then. I thought, hey, this is early because I, where, where's the, I wanted to continue, but I am the resurrection, the life. Remember to try to conclude some of that. But uh, let's continue now with what we have: the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, again, we've already covered this. This should be old hat for some of you and brand new for some of the others of you. But it needs to be a refreshment for all of us. Every time I go back and look at this and study it and read it and think about it again and put it together again, I am refreshed and I am excited because this is such an essential truth for us. The doctrine of the Trinity is the most central and essential doctrine of Christianity. Everything about Christianity, may I repeat that word? Everything about Christianity. May I say it one more time, Lester? Everything about Christianity is the result of and the outworking of this truth, the Trinity. Well, some will call it the Holy Trinity. Every Christian doctrine, may I repeat that? Every Christian doctrine and every Christian practice, every Christian doctrine and every Christian practice is the product and revelation of God's triunity. So that must begin to say something, hopefully, to us concerning the essential foundation upon which the church is built and out of which we are to be living and manifesting this truth as God's image bearers in Christ. You see, this is what Jesus meant. Remember when he said to Philip, remember in John 14, he says, I'm going away and you cannot come. And then Philip says what? Will you show us the Father? And what does Jesus reply in verse 9? Philip, I've been with you all this time and you're going to ask me to show you the Father? In verse 9, he says what? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, remember Judaism is fiercely monotheistic. Do you know what I mean by monotheistic? Mono means what? One. Theism, theo means God. It is the belief in one God. And at least in those days, maybe more than today, although gladly they're still 
parts of Judaism that still hold fiercely to monotheism. In those days, if any Jew in any way implied monotheism wasn't correct, they'd be stoned for heresy, for blasphemy. There's only one God. Because you see, they didn't have the understanding, and nor could they have had the understanding. It was impossible to have the understanding until after the resurrection. So let's not stone them. Because they didn't have the understanding of God's true nature, and any way on anybody or anything that hinted at another God, if you would, smacked of what? Polytheism, paganism. And they went up in flames over this, and rightly so. See, they were very protective of theology, much more so than Christians today, I might say. One of the reasons why this society of ours looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket is so many Christians have not been flaming for the truth of God and not been living for the truth of God, but compromising with what the world says. Oh, the world says that. It'd be all right. We can do it. I don't even want to get into that, darling. Don't hint me. Don't ask me to do that. And so Jesus is here, and he's saying things that smack of what? He is making himself to be God. What's wrong with that? That means there are two gods hanging around. That means it's polytheistic. That means it is heresy. And so you need to understand what these men understood Jesus to be saying and doing. They understood him to be creating a polytheistic religion out of Judaism. So no wonder they were huffing and puffing. Now that's part of the problem. There were other issues too, but that was certainly a central issue here. Remember when Jesus said to the man who was lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. What did you just say? What did he just say? Your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sin so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. I say to you, Pick up your pallet and walk. And he got up and he walked. This was driving the leadership crazy. But you see, the Holy Spirit was keeping from those men a revelation and beginning to give it to others. And so when the presence of God is on the earth, and it is today in us and through us, there's either going to be two things. One of two things will always happen with the presence of God. The presence of God in each one of us as we live righteously and as we go into the world, we don't have to hold up banners. We don't have to throw things. We don't have to scream and yell. We don't have to do that, church. We just have to be righteous before God in a world. Two things will happen. One of two things. Either there will be judgment or there will be blessing. Two things. That's all there is going to be, either blessing or judgment, one or the other. God's going to bring blessing or judgment to those who are experiencing his presence in us.
So when Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, what has he just said? He has caused God, hey, I just stated that he and God are what? Of the same. Of the same. Think of what these men understood and how they felt about it. You see, we read that, yeah, I'm the one with the Father, and the Father's one with me, and we can be one together, and you see me, and you see, and this is so fine. But these people have never heard this, and it is contrary to everything that they understood about God and about truth. This is a monumental statement. These kinds of statements of Jesus were earth-shaking to these men and to these women. We don't see that. We don't feel it. But feel it from their present, you know, from their perspective. <gasps> see, this is what Jesus meant in John 17. Remember the great prayer of John in John 17. They just had their meal together. Jesus said, "Let us arise and go forth." In 16, and they go into the, the they they cross the, the the brook the Kedron right there, right into the garden. And Jesus prays. And John hears his prayer. And is revealed by the Holy Spirit, and he captures it, and he writes it down. In the first three verses, listen to what he said. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Only God can give eternal life. And Jesus is stating here, I give eternal life. Why? Because I am one with the Father, and I have received this authority from my Father to give eternal life. This is why God is only known through the Son. Because the Son of God is the revelation of God the Father upon the earth. And he's not only the revelation of God the Father upon the earth, but he is the way to God the Father. And so this is why he says, only if you go through me, I am the door. Why? Because to do it any other way is a denial of God's triunity. It's a denial of who God is. And so what does he say? If you try to go in in any other way, you're a thief and a robber. You're not coming in. You see, our salvation is accomplished and is communicated to us through the Trinity. The Father has decreed our salvation. Remember in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. The Father has decreed our salvation. The Son has purchased our salvation. Verses 7 to 12. And the Holy Spirit has applied our salvation. Verses 13 to 14. That's a Trinitarian doctrinal statement by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Perhaps one of the most comprehensive and important Trinitarian statements in the entire Bible. We should know what it says. Maybe if we don't verbatim, at least to know. In verses 3 to 6, God the Father has purposed, decreed our salvation in the Son. The Son has done the work of sacrificially giving himself in verses 7 to 12 for the purchase of our salvation through the blood of the cross. 
And then in verses 13 to 14, the Holy Spirit has taken that great work of the cross and in the resurrection and under the authority of the Lord Jesus, I will send the Spirit. Remember, I will send the Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is the authority of God and the person of God on earth, making good what Jesus has accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection, applying it to us. How does he do it? You read Ezekiel 26, remember, 25 especially, and 26 and 27 changes our heart from stone to a heart of flesh <clears throat> and infuses us with his presence so that we now our wills that were under the domination and control of Satan we had no ability at all until the Holy Spirit changed our will freed our will from Satan's grasp we had no ability nor even any desire to be saved but once that happened and the Holy Spirit came into us and broke that deception that captivity then we said yes to Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith Ephesians 2 remember 8 that's how it works we are not saved because we sought Jesus we couldn't seek him we were dead dead people can't get up and do things we were dead and God had to make us alive in Christ by his spirit in the inner man and that is called being born again. Being born again. We are all here today because of the activity of two other people, not ourselves. How many of us will to be born into this world? Our mom and them did that. We were here because of the actions of others. And so God uses that. Jesus uses that terminology. The Bible uses it as an indication of what this is not of you it's a work of the Holy Spirit which we see where in John 1 13 born out of the flesh and etc etc you remember but by the will of God at the end of the verse so we have to keep this in mind think about it how easy it would have been without any injustice at all for God not to have had us in his mind before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, to save us, therefore to create us, and then to birth us into his kingdom at the right time through the work of the Holy Spirit. Think had God not had you in his mind because he does not have every created being in his mind he only has his people that's a mystery but that's the truth think had God not had you in his mind you would have not like me had a snowball chance in hell to be saved amen and I put it that way like oh that's truth that's about how much of a chance you would have had to be saved and not even that much and what should that do that should reduce us into holy gratitude. Oh, I could be here today as one whom God did not create for his own pleasure. And I could be going to hell for eternity because of that. Now, I know there are questions in our minds about God's sovereignty and selection. I don't know the answers of that. I just stay on the side that I know something about. And I will not step into the side I don't and then for begin to be twisted and turned by Satan. I'm not going to do it. All I know is what I know. And I don't care about what I don't know in this particular instance. 
this should reduce us to great gratitude and then should produce in us a zeal to be continually transformed and conformed to the image of Christ to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in us in order that we would confess and repent in order that we would walk away and stop sinning in order for us to get into our word more diligently than ever before because the days are coming to an end to be in prayer much more than we are to be participating in the things of God as he has constituted and instituted them in the church just the single fact I didn't need to be saved there was no reason why God needed to save me he saved me 100% on the basis of his own choice amen if that doesn't produce gratitude and praise you are not saved serious you're not saved if that doesn't touch your heart you need to consider again and do what Paul says in 2nd Corinthians 13 5 you need to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith let's talk a little bit about the Trinity and we'll be going into more detail as we begin to speak about the Trinity we might ask why all this doctrine why so much doctrine you see, because being God's image bearers means that we are displaying God's triune nature. In order to do that, we have to know something about this God whom we are displaying. We have to know something about him. Who is he and how is he? In order to do it, we can't be ignorant. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Ignorant, because the more we know the word, the whole word from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation 20. Two, remember all of it the more we know the more God infuses us with knowledge motivation and empowerment to be conformed to the image of his son so let's be a people who want to know more 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 and more what is it about God's triunity that was on display through Jesus fulfillment of this three office and I've already hinted at this what was on display when Jesus fulfilled the office of prophet, priest, and king? What was he doing? What, would, what were we seeing? He was imaging each of the persons of the Godhead. To jump ahead a little bit, in his king role, his kingly role, he was imaging the Father's rule or the Father's leadership. In the prophet role, he was imaging the activity and role of the Holy Spirit. And in his priestly role, he was imaging his own role as the Son of God. And all of this was a reflection or a revelation, rather, of how the three persons of God interact in this community. All of those have to do with how the three persons relate to one another. This is why it's so essential. And this is what's happening in us by the Spirit. This is what's going on in us. 
as God is conforming us to the image of his son. Where is that? Romans 8, 29. Remember? We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's son. Very important verse. Everybody knows Romans 8, 28. For we know that what? God works all things together for the good for those who love him and according, called according to his purpose. Why? Because we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's why Romans 8.28 is so essential, and that's what's the good of it, the conforming into that. And so what's happening in us as we are being conformed to the image of Christ, we are being conformed into personally and corporately what it means to be a people who image God's triune nature. That's where God is going here. That's what God is wanting. That's why certain issues about the way we relate are so essential and so destructive as we listen to our flesh, the world, and Satan and stop these things that are disallowing the nature of God to be clearly manifested around us. That's the devastation and the dastardly deeds that are happening in the church if we're not being conformed to Christ because what we're doing is as God's community we are saying something about God that is a lie a lie if you have attitudes about another believer you're saying God has attitudes about his children you're lying if you're unforgiving you're saying God is unforgiving you're a liar and no liar has a part in the truth remember if you are withholding fellowship from an unbeliever for whatever reason, you're a liar because God doesn't withhold fellowship from us. He deals with us, but he doesn't withhold it. If we are being stingy and not giving a tithe as God has mandated, we are lying about God, et cetera, et cetera. You see, it's, it's deep. This is deep. Not said when you're just essentially about somebody in here. But as it is about someone in here or in the church, it is mostly about God. Are we getting this? Do we see this? The essential necessity of getting what it means to be a Trinitarian people. You see, and this grace work, this work of being conform to the image of God's Son. This grace-filled work is happening in all of us to the extent that we are presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices, remember in Romans 12, and who are being transformed by the renewing of our minds to do His will by the Spirit. And as we are cooperating, and not only cooperating, but seeking being more passionate about being transformed into the image of Christ than we are to reading our newspapers, watching our television, or looking at our magazines. Did I say reading a magazine, watching TV, and a news? And no, I didn't say it was wrong. I said being what? More passionate about being conformed and transformed. For us to evaluate if we are accurately displaying how do you know you're accurately displaying God's love? How do you know you're accurately displaying God's Trinitarian nature? How do you know that? We must know something about his triune nature. 
And this is the reason why teachers give tests. I was a school teacher. I know a little bit about giving tests. I like giving tests. No. I knew, I don't, don't misunderstand this. Any of you who have been school teachers or still are, you would agree to this. How many of you are school teachers in here? Any teacher? Oh, my word. What's wrong with y'all? And so anybody who's a school teacher and you're with the class for, you know, six weeks or so, I would, I, I would know. Okay, I know what Ron's going to make on the test, basically. I know what he's going to do. Karen, I know what you're going to do. John, you know, there's no way. So I know. Why? Because I'm super. No, there's just something about a gifting in a teacher. And I know what you're going to do. So I give tests not to find out what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. I can give you a grade at the first six weeks. I can tell you what your grade will be in the class if you continue the same way. I'll tell you that. And what I used to do, I used to do that. I used to tell the students after six weeks, here's what you're going to do if you continue the way you want. I know what you're going to do. Why? God gives something to a teacher to know these things. I mean, he gives something to a, a salesman to know how to sell. Right? Oh, you're with me on this. doesn't mean I'm great. It just means that's how God does it. So why test, Judy? Not for me to find out, for you to find out where you are. <laughs> for you to find out, you dumb. No. <laughs> For you to find out you're not studying enough, you're not doing, etc. It's for your benefit. So what is the purpose of all this? It's for God to reveal to us who he is and how we're doing. He knows how we're doing. So once we get the grade back and we get an A, B, C, D, or whatever it is, hopefully as great students of the Holy Spirit, we can say, man, I want to do what? Better. I want to be more pleasing. And I'm going to start hunkering down a little better and study more. That's why we spend the time doing this. So in order to understand the Trinity, now this is really going to throw you. We have to go back and use some of the material from our Genesis study. Can't get away from Genesis, amen? So what I'm going to do next week is, do you have in your notes the person of God in there? All right, I'm going to start there next week. Would someone help me where to begin next week? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to take this portion of this week's lesson and put it on next week's lesson so I don't get confused here and, and mislead you so you figure out where in the world is this man going today, okay? Before I end, any questions at all, any thoughts, any questions? I normally don't ask for questions, but sometimes there may be. Okay, thank you so much for being here today. May, may want to know Demi back there. John's new name is Demi. Demi. Who? Hemi. I'm sorry. I mean Hemi. I'm sorry. Like a Hemi engine. Hemi. There's a reason for that, John. I like it. I like that. <laughs>